Welcome to episode seven of the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. When I was planning the launch of this podcast, there was one communications director I was really keen to get in front of the microphone. Mark Davis is Group Communications and Corporate Affairs Director at the Post Office. Now, if you think you know the Post Office, I'd urge you to think again. The Post Office runs the UK's largest retail and financial services network with more branches than all of the UK's banks and building societies put together. 18 million people visit one of the post office's 11,500 branches every week. And postal services are just part of its business. Today, customers visit branches, contact call centres and go online for travel, money, telecoms and a range of government services. Mark heads up communications for this 370-year-old institution. Today, a commercial business with a social purpose. Previously, he worked in government, serving as a special advisor. And if you don't know what one of those does, don't worry, neither did I, I did ask. But before all of that, Mark was a journalist at the BBC, CNN and in newspapers. We talk about Mark's initial opinion of internal communications and why that changed. We talk about what it really means to work with an organisation that does have a social purpose as part of its DNA. How to better support senior leaders as a communicator. Oh, and also the story of Gladys's bench. It's all coming up now on the Internal Comms Podcast. So, Mark, what I'd like to do, if I may, is take you back, I was going to say right back to the beginning, not quite back to the beginning, but Liverpool 1990. You're about to leave John Moores University with a BA in psychology and sociology to enter the world of print and broadcast journalism. I'm just wondering what initially attracted you to journalism? I think it kind of goes back a few years before that so I think there's a couple of things so one I think I can't I've never been able to quite place it but I know there was a point when I was probably in sixth form around that time when I started to think oh writing that's what I want to do I always loved English language and English literature there was something about journalism that kind of attracted me then and I think probably being an impressionable kind of teenager I think I probably saw a film or something like that with a journalist in it who seemed quite cool and I probably thought oh that'd be a good profession to do when I went to Liverpool Poly in 1986. One of the very best things I've ever done in my entire life, actually, was to go the first week that I was there to the Students' Union and go and find the office of the student magazine, which was called Shout Magazine at Liverpool Poly, and go up to the editor there, a guy called Phil Inman, and say, please, can I kind of write music reviews for Shout? And when I think back to that, I'm kind of surprised in a way that I did it, because I was never very particularly sort of outgoing. It was almost like I was being propelled to do it. And he said, yeah, sure. And I went and I found out that this wonderful thing, you could get free tickets for gigs if you were writing <laughs> reviews for the student magazine, which just seemed extraordinary. The first review I did was The Stranglers at Liverpool University. And I can remember the first line was something horribly clunky like, before I went to this gig, I got the impression that some people thought The Stranglers were past it. 
oh no they weren't or something horrendously <laughs> kind of glib and cliche written like that and actually when you think about it, that was 1986 and it did seem like the stranglers were kind of past it in 1986 but yes. it's still going so it's kind of, <laughs> they clearly weren't past it in 1986 anyway it was like i kind of got a bog then it was just like that was it really in a way and although yeah i did do a degree in sociology and psychology kind of probably not great advice for people at the university now but it kind of went slightly to second place the degree to the journalism actually I think something about writing, something about just being able to reflect back what was going on, albeit it was mainly gigs, although I started writing about politics and all sorts of things, really, in, in the student magazine. And then took a year out of my course to be the editor of the magazine oh. for a year and sit on the student union executive and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, being the editor of it was just, you know, a fantastic thing to do and just to be able to shape it and try and make it, you know, interesting and, and reflect back the life of being a student in Liverpool and Liverpool at the time was just, you know, it, I got the bug and I was hooked and that was kind of it. There was another thing as well, which had a really kind of deep impression on me, which was in 1989, obviously Hillsborough happened in, oh, in, of course. in Liverpool. And we went down to Anfield on the Monday after the tragedy and it was, I get tingles just thinking about it now, it was an extraordinary thing to be in Liverpool at that time. I'm not from Liverpool, but being a, someone who was in the city at the time and, and was incredibly, and still I'm incredibly fond of it, for that to have happened and also for the kind of the appalling way in which it was covered by yes. some of the newspapers, it had a deep, deep impression on me. Partly actually because I saw brilliant local journalism because the Liverpool Echo at the time yes. was just absolutely fantastic in terms of the way that it spoke up for the city and there was something you know really really powerful about that something really it showed the power of local journalism and yes. how it can be a real force for good in a really you know incredible way and obviously in the most you know tragic of of times and actually you know who couldn't be kind of affected by something like that you know we went down to Anfield and to see the pitch covered in flowers you know it was, it was an incredibly emotional thing and we produced a magazine sort of in memory of the people who died at Hillsborough and we didn't usually sell it we sold it on this occasion raised a little bit of money for the Hillsborough Fund I think there was something in that about showing I suppose it was a good and bad journalism really it shows yes. through the Liverpool Echo example how you know great journalism is really really important yes. speaking up for areas and also uncovering injustice and of course on the other side what the terrible journalism doing? can have yes. a deep deep and profound and detrimental impact on, mm. on a you know not just a group of people who were obviously most profoundly affected but on a whole city yes so i think all those things probably came together that sort of love of writing you know the experience of seeing that kind of journalism good and bad and just i think getting hooked on the idea of using words and being in you know a journalism in itself as so I, I then started applying for graduate trainee roles on local newspapers and the echo you know were the first i suppose to offer me an interview and, and i went along and, and was lucky enough to get on the on the graduate scheme and, and then kind of off it went from there really so yes. yeah do those skills that you learned then and that training do you still use those skills today i still see myself actually as a journalist really yeah That's I, mean, I, I left journalism i guess in 2004 but i still see myself basically first and foremost as a journalist and actually still kind of think God, that's a good story. <laughs> you know, I can't get out of that mentality of, of almost thinking that. I still use my shorthand as well, and people in on the group executive at the post office, I can see them kind of looking at me when I'm writing, scribbling stuff on my pad, and it's, you know, it's one of the best skills I ever learned with shorthand. Absolutely. It's an amazing yes. skill to have. I mean, great journalism is all about storytelling. Uh, you know, it's all about great writing. It's all about 
great writing, but in a restricted space and being able to really tell a story in a quickly, powerfully compelling way. And so I still think those skills, and I, and I think it's whether it's internal comms, external comms, whatever it is, the skills of a journalist, I think, are absolutely fundamental to that. I think also, interestingly, I don't think journalists who are still journalists necessarily always recognise just the range of skills they've got. Ah. Journalists often say, oh, I'm just a journalist. You know, actually, the skills to be a journalist, to turn a story around as quickly as you do in a clear, compelling way that is hopefully accurate, captures reality, is an incredible skill to have. It is. And also to be able to obviously engage with people. I mean, as you, you know, as in, yes. you know, when I started out on The Echo in, in 1990 and going off and doing court reporting and going seeing people living in, you know, some really tough situations in Liverpool you know, you meet a lot of people and you have to engage and you have to be able to work out how to talk to people. It Absolutely. sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it's kind of, you no, know... No, there's a skill Not everyone can do it that well, actually. And mm. I think journalists often kind of underplay the range of skills they have. So, you know, I, I still see myself as a, as a journalist. No, that makes absolute sense. Now, you went on to work in politics. You had two special advisor roles, I believe. We hear that term quite a lot, special advisor, particularly at the moment, but I'm guessing that quite a few people don't actually know what a special advisor does day to day. Do you want to enlighten sure. us about that? I got my first special advisor job, which was for Baroness Amos when she was leader of the House of Lords, first black woman to lead the House of Lords in 2004. I'd sort of made the switch from journalism. I'd been working at the BBC and I got the job with Valerie. The lure of that was really actually come out of a sort of frustration with journalism where you're sort of feeling that you're sitting on the sidelines and, and wanting to sort of really understand what's it actually like, you know, kind of doing things, if you like. And so I became a special advisor for Valerie, primarily on media, and then went on to work for Jack Straw, after the 2005 election, I worked for him in the Foreign Office and then the leader of the House of Commons Office and then the Ministry of Justice when he was Secretary of State for Justice. Essentially, I was in there as a media expert and a communications expert, and that's what I primarily did for both Valerie and Jack. But inevitably, the role of the Special Advisor is broad and varied and can go anything from, you know, supporting and, and actually in some, some ways defining policy advice or actually pushing forward policies right through to making sure you bought the right sandwiches or, or in fact Jack still owes me for a key fob thing that he bought on Blackburn Market one time and didn't have the money on him it's that full range and actually I think people often say what's it like being a special advisor in a way you can't really there's no sort of set way of doing it I think special advisors effectively do the role that their minister their secretary of state wants them to do and that can vary dramatically oh, right. across the board there isn't a kind of set job description for it i suppose someone once said to me special advisors get more and more like their bosses as they go along i don't know whether that's true or not <laughs> um, but what is true is that it can only work if you've got a really close relationship right. close working okay. relationship which almost borders on a kind of personal relationship as well with the person that you're working for, but they fundamentally define what they want. So I kind of always felt incredibly privileged to have the opportunity to play a part in the delivery of public policy on behalf of the government, to, you know, be able to go into meetings at Number 10 and mm. go into meetings in the Foreign Office and, and all those sorts of things, and to be a part of that was an incredible privilege. And actually to work for someone like Jack Straw and Valerie Amos was an incredible privilege as well. You know, really, really, in my view, fantastic politicians who were fantastic politicians but were also incredibly well respected by the civil service as well right. you know they were people who worked and I learned an awful lot from them actually in terms of the roles I do now about listening to other people to taking into account lots of different views reaching a decision ultimately but being prepared to listen and being prepared to engage one of the things that Jack was particularly good at and you can imagine the range of issues he was dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis in the foreign office or the ministry of justice you know, Vascan, a range of issues and some of them really, really difficult ones. And he always made the extra effort 
to ask officials what they thought, what they do in this situation. Mm. And he would get really good answers and really interesting answers. Wouldn't necessarily go down that direction, but it was about encouraging that debate and encouraging people to come forward and express a view. It learns a huge amount from that. I hesitate to mention the B word, but yeah. given your background and your interest presumably still in politics, do you have any observations to share on the current state of affairs, where we find ourselves now? <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard question. It, it We've really just is. Had I mean, yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting is, and this is a, it's almost a communications point as well, isn't it? Just how how entrenched we seem to have become. Whatever one's view about Brexit, whether it's right to remain or to leave, what seems really striking to me is the lack of almost reasoned debate yes. about it. The, the sort of inability, it seems to me, to be able to say, you don't hear people saying this, well, I respect your view, but this is my view. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like that. It feels so oppressive. It feels so so sort of sharp, the debate, all the time, that there isn't this room for just trying to understand, to reach across and say, well, why do you think... Oh, I, you know, just some of the things that I think had different approaches been taken mm. we might not be in the place we are now if people have been more able to reach out and try to find consensus try to find try to find ways through in an atmosphere of kind of mutual respect yes and it's that lack of or that loss or feels like a loss of sort of mutual respect it's either you know lots of pointing of fingers lots of and obviously you don't have to go far on twitter to find much much worse than that Yes. It feels really corrosive and dangerous to me. Yes. When I worked for Jack, one of the things that he often used to say in speeches, he would always re you know, when he wrote a speech for Jack, wrote a lot of speeches for Jack, and he'd rewrite all the speeches I wrote for Jack. <laughs> but he always wanted to have a kind of a first draft to go at, and then he would always work for me. He didn't like just doing it straight off. When he was doing speeches in the Ministry of Justice around the Constitution and the future of Britain and constitutional reform, he would always write sections into his speech about the importance of democracy and the value of democracy and how much you know we should cherish democracy. And I always used to think, well, they're great words and I think they work really well. And but I don't know why you need to say that democracy. Oh. You know, we don't need to worry about that sort of thing. I actually feel with the way that the debates are going on Brexit and and actually, if you look across the Atlantic to the states as well, it's a similar kind of thing. Actually, we take democracy for granted at our peril I think absolutely and when you look at some of the things that are going on in some of the other countries around the world where people don't have the freedom to go and march as people did in London for a people's vote or equally to go and march to say let's leave the European Union you know it feels to me that the more corrosive and the more kind of divided those debates become the greater the risk actually to democracy is and, and I agree. you know I now understand so much more why Jack used to say that and actually you know, it's not something we should take for granted, nor is it something which is sort of so deeply entrenched in our society that it's kind of going to be there forever. It's in our interest and everyone's interest who has a much more of a role in these things than I do to really preserve and nurture it rather than take it for granted. And I think that's one of the things that I find really kind of worrying about where we are on Brexit and on lots of other issues as well. Just that lack of sort of a common ground and an ability to reach out and try and find a position of sort of respectful disagreement absolutely we get polarized so quickly and freedom of speech unfortunately does mean you have to listen to things you don't agree with yeah absolutely it's almost like when when people hear something they don't like they just shout back with rage and anger and sometimes worse and it's a perfectly legitimate view for people to take to go march in london and say they think it should be another referendum even if you don't agree that that's the right course of action totally legitimate 
position to take, isn't it? Just Absolutely. as it's a totally legitimate position to take to think that we'd be better off outside the European Union or yes. a version of uh, in between. It's, it, it's just corrosive. Yeah. I mean, I think it's totally possible, isn't it, to entertain an idea, not necessarily agree with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. To exactly. give it space and time yeah. and to ruminate on it, you don't necessarily have to say exactly. I agree with you. And surely that's the only way you then reach any kind of consensus or you, or you make some progress because otherwise you're just retrenching retrenching into your position you're never going to get out of it and move on and I think that's the thing that there's lots of things to say about Brexit but I think that's one of the things that I, yeah. I worry about the most yeah. let's bring you on change tack very slightly but bring you on to the post office now I'm going to guess that the scale the breadth the significance of the post office's operations on the high street. They may see it every day, but they won't really know. Just the scale. So could you give us a sense of the kind of the wow factors, I guess, about the post office? Sure. I mean, well, there's a post office within three miles of 99% of the population. So, I mean, that's a good place to start. So within one mile of 93% of the population. So, you know, there is a post office in almost every community in the country. I only don't say every community because I know there'll be some places where there isn't a post office, but there will be one very, very close. And I think the thing that's most attractive to me about the post office in in the 21st century is that I think, you know, we are on a daily basis providing an absolutely vital service to literally, you know, millions of people. We're not as important as the health service, but we absolutely have a fundamentally important part to play in, in millions of people's lives every day. And in some cases, that's as important as making sure that you've got the money that you need to survive for the rest of the week because yes. you're getting your benefit or your, or your pension out of the, the post office on a Monday morning or whatever else. At Christmas, we all go into branch and, and work for, you know, it's obviously the busiest time of the year. So we all go in and, and actually go and do a proper day's uh, work <laughs> for a change. And I go and do do my shifts in Brixton, which is quite near, near where I live. And you literally in Brixton get a cross-section of almost everybody in society and you see the importance of the business to so many people. So that's the thing, the thing that's the most exciting thing about it. And I think it's also really exciting because it's a business that's been around for 370 or so years. Everyone knows it. We don't have a problem with... Um, no, brand uh, recognition. Uh, brand recognition. That's not a problem. What I think we do have a problem with and I think we'd acknowledge this, is that people think of us, potentially think, well, yeah, I can see that there's a post office very near everybody, but I don't really understand how that works for me in my life on a daily basis. Now, you obviously do if you use it regularly, but I think for the kind of younger generation who don't necessarily, haven't grown up with a post office, haven't grown up with a savings account, haven't letters are not so much a part of everyone's lives these days, let's face it, there's a challenge for us, which is to say, how do we reinvent the post office and, and what it means to 21st century society in a, you know, Kind of cliche, but in a rapidly changing world. As I said, the days of writing letters are kind of not over, but letters are massively in decline. Mm. At the same time, there's a whole range of areas where the post office has got a really, really active role to play. We are the main provider of cash to the country. So in terms of, you know, as the banks close in communities, we're still there. And actually through the banking framework that we have, the arrangement we have with all the high street banks, you know, the post office is now the physical home of banking on the high street, the place where you, you can do your everyday banking. And that's really, really exciting. You know, that's fundamentally important, to, as I say, to millions of lives and small businesses and communities and growth and economic success in those areas. I think there's a whole range of areas where potentially the post office could play even more and things like digital identity and things like that, which are increasingly a kind of growth area. It's, it's small, but it's something that could really... I think will really take off over the course of the next few years. So I think that that sort of 
that combination of the history of the business, the ubiquity of the business, the fact that we're everywhere, the universal access, the post office is for everyone, combined with the challenge that we have of reinventing the business for the 21st century while preserving the things that really, really matter is what makes it such a you know, fantastic business. It's a sort of much-loved business, a bit like, again, the NHS. I mean, again, not as important as the NHS, but a lot of the research we do says that people have a real emotional bond with the business, with the post office. And that's not with the post office at a corporate level, by the way. It's really important as well to say, you know, the post office isn't a kind of big thing. It's a lot of, lots of, many thousands of different things, community post offices, people working in their towns, cities, villages on a day-to-day basis, really knowing their customers, mm. really knowing the things that matter in their communities, really, you know, really um, uh, representing the business. That's the post office brand, really. It's not me. It's not anybody sitting in our headquarters in Chesterfield or Bolton or, or down here in London. It's actually what happens on a day-to-day basis in the branches all around the country. So that's, I suppose, a sort of snapshot of where we are. I mean, I think you know, it's a really, really exciting. I've been here for nearly seven years now, and I think it's never felt as an exciting time as it is now. We've we've spent a lot of time over the last seven years revitalising the network, longer opening hours, you know, in some cases 24-7 branches, some, many branches open seven days a week now, changing so that we're in tune with what customers want. And customers yes. want the convenience, customers want to be able to drop things off early in the morning, do things later at night on the way home from work or whatever. You know, we've done a huge amount of change in that space. 7,000 branches or so have transformed over the last four or five years, which makes it one of the largest transformation programs in, in Europe. But we've got a huge amount more to do, and that's what kind of makes it, you know, still really, really uh, exciting and just a brilliant business to work for. I mean, it's just a brilliant business. It's, it's brilliant to work for a business, which is so fundamental to UK life, and it's got such an important part to play in UK life. It was interesting to me, I mean, certainly you've always described the business as, and it says on your website, a commercial business with a social purpose. And it seems to me more and more organisations, even if they just work purely as private companies in that sphere, are trying to find their purpose. What does it feel like on a day-to-day basis when you're in meetings and you're making key decisions to have that social purpose in mind? Do you make decisions differently? because of that? I think we do. I mean, I think social purpose is, is in the DNA of the business, really. I think for some organisations, social purpose is, I don't say this in a way to be critical or anything, but it's a kind of an add-on, I think, to right. some extent. I think social purpose for the post office is in the DNA of the business. It's about making sure that, you know, we have branches in every community. It's about making sure that people are able to access cash in every single community in, in the country. And it's about making sure that we do things in the kind of the way that you'd expect of the post office and the post office brand so absolutely the social purpose lives in what we do corporately if you like and certainly you know when we're debating new products or we're debating challenges with the network or whatever else social purpose is always part of those conversations I think sometimes we I was going to say struggle to define it over the years I don't think that's true we've not struggled to define it but I think sometimes there are probably different versions of social purpose around the business at the corporate level I think sometimes people see it in different ways. You know, we're a government-owned business, and that's really, really important. We have criteria to meet in terms of network provision and and what are called services of general economic interest, the things that we must provide. And sometimes I think people sort of see social purposes boxed into that space, sort of almost something that, you know, the government tells us to do that, so we must do it. But I think increasingly we're taking a different view, which is actually, no, no, we as a business own our social purpose and can shape it and drive it for the future and I think more and more we're starting to think about it in those terms and about how 
as we try to develop the business in potentially new areas, or indeed as we try to expand, as we have done over the last few years, the banking services that we provide. We're thinking about those things very much from a perspective of social purpose. You know, it means the most vulnerable, it means supporting the most vulnerable people in society, absolutely. It means supporting those parts of society which are critical to the country's success in the future, small businesses, economic growth, as I've, as I've said, in, in whatever part of the country that means. So I think it is, it's really alive within the business. And I think what we absolutely know is it's massively alive in the network. So many postmasters and their people in the 11,500 branches that we have, they're living it every single day because they know their customers inside out. What we've perhaps forgotten, actually, at the centre, if you like, is that, that social purpose is delivered not by us, but by the people who run post offices. The change, actually, I think, to the point about how does an organisation sort of move forward with purpose... I think the challenge for us is to see it less as a kind of centralised function where you'll be sort of almost dictating what people should do about the social purpose and actually doing much more about enabling the people who are delivering it day to day right. to do more and to support them. So, so we're more facilitators than, te- you know, I wouldn't yes. say dictators, that's a, but, you know, yes. it's about facilitating and supporting and enabling postmasters and their people up and down the country to be able to do more if they want to in a way the argument that we'll make is that being a, a socially responsible, community-focused business is really good, actually, for your business as well. The two are not separate things. There's not kind of commercial success over here and social purpose over here. Socially responsible businesses are likely to be commercially successful businesses. And the more commercially successful you are, the more socially responsible you can be. And I think taking that argument out and, and supporting postmasters, enabling them to do even more, is the way I'd like us to develop it, and it's the way that we're talking about developing it at the moment, actually. Because, you know, as I said, postmasters are the ones that know their areas. They are the face of the post office. They know their communities. They know the needs in their communities, and the needs in their communities are not going to be the same needs as a community down the road or a community at the other end of the country. I think that sounds really exciting. That's almost like you're being social with your social purpose. Yeah. That's the point where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we've got... When we talk about, you know, social purpose and the social value of the post office to the nation, you can come at it from two ends of the the spectrum, if you like. A few years ago, when we were talking to government about funding for our investment programme and change programme, the government commissioned some work to try and estimate the social value of the post office to the UK. And I can't remember exactly what the figure was it came up with, but it was something like £9 billion a year in social value to the UK, which is like, whoa, great, great fact, great stat. And obviously something that we using all of our comms and, you know, we're worth nine billion a year or the post office is worth nine billion a year to the nation. Now, the other end of the spectrum, you get the stories that you know from an anecdotal basis that, that happen every single day. So, you know, anyone who comes into contact with a post office of any kind will know a story about, I mean, the one that Paula, our outgoing CEO, often talks about is the, there's a branch up in Manchester where she visits, where there's a bench. As soon as you go into the branch, there's a bench by the front door. And she went on a visit and said to the postmaster, what's this bench doing here? You could have all sorts of retail here. You could have whatever, this, that, and the other. No, 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 no. That's Gladys's bench. (laughs) (laughs) She comes in every day. She comes in for a chat at two o'clock. That's her bench. She's always there. So you've got the nine billion at one end of the spectrum. Then you've got the Gladys's benches and the many, many other stories at the other end of the spectrum when it comes to social purpose. Now, for me, the nine billion is, well, it's all right, but I don't know what that means, really. Nine billion pounds a year. How do you quantify that? How do you really kind of bring that to life? 
the Gladys's bench stories, absolutely you can bring them to life. But is there a, somewhere in between those two things where you really kind of build a picture of the social impact that the post office has on every single community in the country? Mm. And how do you, as I say, help to enhance that by mm. supporting, facilitating postmasters and others to do even more mm. to support it? I think that's a really kind of fascinating and interesting challenge for us that really kind of helps us, I think, to bring the social purpose piece to life across the business for our internal audiences and, and obviously take it out for external audiences as well. That's really interesting. I'm thinking of all sorts of creative things you can do now to encourage just people to come in for a chat. And loneliness, I'm thinking about loneliness amongst old people. I agree. Uh, for example, well, not just old people, to be honest, but who knows where that could go. Completely agree. I, mean, I think, you know, if there's something that sort of more, almost defines the post office's kind of social purpose it's something to do with we don't leave anyone behind we don't exclude anybody we you know we are about trying to bring people together there's a great branch in in Pontrellas in Wales where every Christmas they do a, a lunch every Christmas day they do a lunch they open up the branch for lunch for, pe- for people who you know don't have anyone to share Christmas with so they do that you know that's another fantastic example but how do you almost help people to scale that there's an, actually quite an interesting paradox at play here because you're, on one hand you're saying, and I think quite rightly, for maybe for younger people, millennials, they're thinking, what relevance does this organisation have on the high street? On the other hand, you're talking about high streets which are universally the same, but actually you're an institution that's allowing this local autonomy, mm-hmm. getting people allowed to be very close to their customer mm. and being quite innovative around yeah. how they support their customer, which sounds incredibly bold and, and new, to if, be honest. If, yeah, absolutely. What it requires, though, is a massive, not massive, but a big cultural shift for us as an organisation. Right. Because I think we also can have a tendency to be a bit sort of leading from the centre. And it's that point about, you know, how do you enable rather than tell yes. uh, that I think we need to get right. But I completely agree with you. And, and certainly... My colleagues who work in the, in the retail team who effectively run the network, if you like, are looking at how they can shift the model to be ever more responsive to postmasters and others so that we're truly working more closely with them rather than being a slightly remote corporate headquarters. An ivory tower. Exactly. Now you've got obviously a very big job on your hands then from a communication viewpoint. Just to paint the picture, can you describe a little bit about the sort of the structure of your team and your key areas of responsibility? Sure. So, I mean, internal communications is, is fundamental to us and that's complex for us in the sense that we obviously have an employed workforce in our back offices, if you like, corporate but the supply chain, the guys who, people who drive the money around the country effectively, and those colleagues who work in the branches that we own and run, which is a small number, it's only about 200, but we do still own and run some of our own branches. The rest are all franchisees, and that's the other side. So internal comms for us is also the franchisees, the agents, the postmasters, the people who run, and the people who work in their branches. So there's 11,500 of them, so that's about 50,000 people when you take into account postmasters and their staff. So internal comms is a... I'm sure it's not, you know, we're not the only organisation to have a complex internal comms environment, obviously, but that is a challenging internal comms environment because you've obviously got different motivators, different needs, different channels to think about. Our news desk, our press operation is obviously really important. We get a lot of, you know, the post office is nothing if not a subject of national interest. And that means inevitably that we get a huge number of calls from regional papers, local papers, national papers to do with, you know, from branch changes right through to business strategy. So we have the news desk function. Public affairs, similarly, you know, the post office, I suspect, is one of the few organisations in the country, or certainly businesses in the country, 
where you could walk into the House of Commons and see that they're having a debate about a single post office. And it happens wow. quite regularly. Wow. That, you know, you're walking there. A few couple of years ago, I walked in and there was just said, Aloha post office on the annunciator in the House of Commons. And that's a debate about a single post office of 11,500 branches. And that's absolutely right, of course, because we're a publicly owned business. And the MP for Aloha in that instance clearly wanted to have a debate about whatever it was that we were doing. In terms of, I think it was a franchising Aloha post office, I think, off from memory. So engaging with MPs, engaging with Parliament, engaging with sort of broader civil society is fundamentally important. It's actually, you know, talk about social purpose, it's part of our social purpose, actually, is to explain why we're doing things. And sometimes we're doing things that people don't like. So in terms of franchising branches, so where we franchise branches that we currently own and manage, and we're actually franchising them out to franchisees, so we're no longer going to own and manage them, that's massively controversial for people. It's controversial for communities, it's controversial often for the local MP, regardless of political party. It's controversial for our unions, who are very important to the relationships we have with our unions are very important to us. It's fair to say they don't like franchising. And it's controversial with the Labour Party as a policy position, so the, the opposition don't like what we're doing either. So it's really important that even though people don't like what we're doing, we don't just pull up the drawbridge and say, well, I'm sorry, we're not interested in what you think, because we're doing it anyway. And that's mm. not what we do, obviously, partly because it wouldn't be the right thing to do anyway, mm. but also because we're a publicly owned business and we have a duty and a, a responsibility to talk to people about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then policy and government is a sort of related area, obviously. We are, as I said, a publicly owned business, so... We have a shareholder in UK Government Investments, which sits sort of between the Treasury and the Business Department in government. And then the policy direction for government in terms of post office policy is directed from the Business Department. So the Secretary of State for Business, Greg Clark, is our shareholder effectively. Right. And a minister in his team, Kelly Tolhurst, is the post office minister. So there's a huge amount of engagement with policy level officials at shareholder level, if you like, in government. And then there's a sort of broader policy piece as well, which is about how do we sort of help to influence the policy agenda in government or in the business community, the business world, to support post office aims and objectives. The banking framework being a good example, you know, lots of work that we've done talking to the banks, talking to government, talking to others about the everyday banking services that we provide. We did have consumer PR sat in, in our area, and that's actually just moved recently to, to marketing, actually. Right. I suppose that ultimately my empire is less important than the best outcomes for the post office. So, you know, increasingly I think the world between, or the divide, if you like, between PR and marketing is increasingly blurred. And I think my team, the team that we developed in, in PR and campaigns here are absolutely first class. I think one of the best in the industry. Their main, I suppose, stakeholders in the business were in the marketing team. And it just feels as the lines between PR campaigns and marketing become more and more blurred, it just felt like a logical move to make. I suppose as long as there was clear clarity around the respective roles of the two teams, you know, we're fundamentally responsible for protecting the reputation of the post office, engaging our people and supporting our colleagues across the business in doing the very best for customers. And so it sort of felt like the right call to make given that they done such a, and do such a fantastic job in a kind of integrated communications way. As I say, so long as there were still the links back between them and um, them and my team so that we, we can make sure that we kind of have a really clear and consistent message going out to the wider world. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I'm interested to know how many people that yeah. is in your world then, because that's a complicated set of audiences. Yeah, it is. So it's approximately, it's about 40 people. 
and it tends to ebb and flow a little bit because we've had so many change programs over the, the last few years. We've had some fantastic colleagues actually working with us, coming in and doing interim roles for us across some of the change programs that we've had, obviously working really, really closely into the business and colleagues in the business on some of those programs because they fundamentally, a lot of them affect people and people's lives. And it's critically important in any communications, obviously, to ensure that whatever we do puts the people who are affected first, actually. So, you know, we've over the course of the last few years, the number of people working for the business has, has come down and people have left the business. And it's been fundamentally important as that's happened that those people have been treated in the right way. And obviously that's not just my team that deals with that, but there is something very important in the tone, the approach, the words we use when that's happening. Because as much as we are making, and I know we all go home knowing that we've made the right decisions for the business, you're affecting people's lives and their day-to-day. And it's critically important that you maintain that sense of dignity and respect throughout if someone was to say to me would you like some more people in the team I'd obviously say yes always sometimes people go oh it's a big team I don't think it is really when you think about some of the challenges that we have in terms of the amount of kind of incoming traffic we get from media and and from Westminster and elsewhere as well as obviously wanting to proactively go out and tell our story externally and then to the internal piece I think you know given the nature of those audiences those different audiences that we have I think it's actually pretty lean, actually, considering yes. those challenges, really. I, I would agree, considering When you think the you've numbers. got 11,500 post offices with about 50,000 people working in them, the only way we can actually guarantee reaching all of those branches, they don't have email, they don't have post office email addresses. So the only way we can really guarantee getting to all of them is to write to them, <laughs> which you know, is, I suppose, apt, given apt. that we're the post office. But, you know, that's a reality that, that, you know, so when we want to get a message out, if it's so important and it has to go to everybody, we've got a right to everybody, you know, we can use our point of sale system to sort of flash up a a pretty short message, which broadly speaking would say, we've done X, go and have a look at the website, or we're going to write to you or whatever else. But it's it's indicative, I suppose, of the challenge that we have. It's quite hard to reach Mm. an audience that, and it's sort of half internal and half external, because obviously postmasters don't work for us. They are they're franchisees, small businesses, and actually there's a the range of the segmentation there is also vast because you've got everything from communities where people have literally come together in their area to run the post office as a community project, if you like, community post office, through to, you know, we work with the multiples, with WH Smith, with many others as well. Ryman's, for instance, one of our, one of our new branch on the Strand with Ryman's a couple of weeks ago. That's a huge, complex challenge. I'm just interested in the amount of change communication you must have done over the last seven years and probably continue to do, because this is very much a turnaround business as well, isn't it? You've gone from loss-making to profit. When you think back on all that change communication, are there some key characteristics, things that normally mean that change is going to be more successful from a comms viewpoint, do you think? I think that thing about maintaining the kind of human touch to it is critically important change communications particularly when you get into some of the really complex stuff that we've changed around you know systems and it projects or the pensions project that i talked about i think there's a real risk with those sorts of projects that because they're so big and complex if you're not careful and not very thoughtful about it you can forget that there's people involved and people's livelihoods involved and people's futures involved in many cases so i think that's one thing i think i feel kind of really proud actually i think by that criteria i think we've done a, a very good job in terms of how we've communicated some of those big change projects. I think the thing that I've probably found the most difficult, I think, is maintaining the kind of narrative, if you like, around it all. Because it has been so big. People sometimes say, oh, you've been in the business six, seven years now, and it really doesn't feel like that because so much has happened over the last few years. It's felt constantly 
from a professional point of view, it's been constantly kind of compelling. But I think one of the challenges within that is just maintaining that kind of high level. I hate the word narrative, actually. I absolutely hate it because it's one of those things that whenever someone's got some sort of business problem, they will say, well, we need a narrative. We absolutely must have a narrative immediately on this. And I think, well, I'm not sure a narrative is going to solve the issue necessarily. <laughs> of course, we might want to get the words right on this. But I don't think that just by getting a narrative, we're going to go magically into a place where the world has suddenly been transformed. Everything's OK. So I kind of say that point about overarching narrative. With air with quotes. A, with a, with a, exactly. <laughs> but I do think there is something about when you're trying to take a fairly sort of complex audience mix together on a journey, keeping that kind of really high level sense of the story, if you like, is really quite challenging. I think as a business corporately, we've sort of occasionally kind of fallen on a set of words or, or narrative, which has felt right. And then we've kind of got bored of it too quickly. Yes. I think one of the critical things that in any kind of communication, it's a bit like the Tony Blair education, education, education thing, isn't it? You've got to repeat something a hundred times before people receiving the message have heard it once or twice, and probably a thousand times before they've heard it as many times as you need them to. And I think one of the risks for corporate communicators, such as myself, is that we kind of fall on something that we like the sound of, and it works really, really well, and it tests well, etc., and we go for it, and, and then we get bored of it. But we forget that the rest of the audience is still just in receiver mode. They're just starting to possibly get it. But we've then moved off and we've gone on to something else. And sometimes I need to be a bit firmer with senior colleagues as well, not to sort of flit from one message to the next too quickly. I think it's a real, it's a real lesson to me, definitely, about, about this point about consistency and, and clarity and being absolutely determined to stick with it and actually face down where people start to get, oh, no, we need a different message. We're a bit bored of that one now. No, stick with it. It's really important. I think it happens all the time. I think I see it all the time with clients that, because they're saying it every day, they're writing it every day, and they feel like they're repeating themselves, and they're worried because they're bored with it, the audience is bored with it. And actually, there's a massive difference between familiarity and boredom. And actually, audiences like a degree of familiarity. That's what you've been saying. That's what you're still saying. Good, I know where I am. It's almost like when we were younger and we liked, the bedtime story repeated we yeah. knew the ending but we liked that and yeah, there was comfort yeah. in that and I think you're right I think more and more audiences actually are quite happy to have the same thing repeated if it makes sense and mm. it still seems relevant yeah. I think that's fine yeah. I think that's fine yeah. we get bored we want the bright shiny new thing and we want to flex our creativity don't we that's the yeah, thing yeah exactly I know. exactly and I understand that you were one of the first proponents, I think, of this closer integration between internal and external. And certainly with the launch of One, this suite of communications that was deliberately for quite a wide audience. So your internal employees, also franchisees, but then you can go on www.onepostoffice and anyone can have mm. a look. Talk to me about some of the attractions and benefits of that closer integration and also perhaps some of the problems that might occur mm. with it as well. Yeah, and I've sort of moved a bit in my thinking on this as well. So I think that the benefits are, particularly in a business like ours, where if you take the franchising of the branches that we own to new partners and agents as an example, that's an issue where you've got every element of the communications suite that, that I'm responsible for. So Primarily, it's the most important thing in all of that are the colleagues affected by it. So internal communications to our employed colleagues on that is fundamentally important. And I'm really, I think the team have done so proud of some of the guys out there, the work that they've done. You know, they're brilliant. But it also plays into the kind of broader 
there's a news element of it, the, mm. me, the media relations piece, because obviously they attract regional, local media, national media sometimes. And then there's the stakeholder public affairs government piece as well. So it's got everything in a way. The reason why I think I was very attracted to the idea of us kind of really bringing things even more closely is exactly for those sorts of reasons. That having a person or a team sort of responsible for every element of that felt to me like the, the optimum way of ensuring that you had consistency of message, which is obviously so fundamental to something as, as big as that, that was real clarity about what we were doing and saying, and everyone kind of effectively knew the story. And I think that's still true, by the way. And I think I also think that I would always say to anyone coming into the team, starting out on their career as a communicator, that if they have any ambition to kind of do the sort of job I do or any kind of senior role in comms, I think the days of sort of saying, well, I'm a PR specialist, by the way, or I'm an internal comms specialist, or I'm a public affairs, are kind of over, I think. I don't think you can kind of get away with that anymore. I think you need to really try to be an all-rounder as much as possible. That all said, (laughs) (laughs) I have moved a bit. And I increasingly, I think, and there's a kind of a bit of a mea culpa as well, I think, particularly around internal communication. So I think my background is journalism, and then I worked in government. And I think I probably, and again, this is definitely a mea culpa, I think I probably, in my head, probably had internal conversations just slightly less important than than media relations and public affairs and all of that kind of stuff. And I completely have changed my view. You know, I'm not saying it's more important, but I just don't think there, there is no hierarchy of importance, I think, in those functions. And I kind of feel slightly guilty about ever having had a slight kind of sense of that. Because I think what I've realised is that unless you get the internal comms right, it's very, very hard then to get the rest of it right. There's loads of different reasons for that. But I think if we can't engage our colleagues in the story and the the change or whatever it is, or simply just effectively tell them about it, then it's going to be really difficult to do it with anybody else. And our colleagues, particularly our are our kind of principal audience. They're the people who every day come in to work and do so because we hope they really want to kind of get out of bed and come and do a great job for the post office every single day. So they are the most important people we have. And by that, I mean our colleagues who work in post offices who may not be employed by us, but obviously mm. you know, represent the post office every single day. And they are the way in which the brand is projected much more than anything, even than the marketing team do potentially, and much more than potentially we do in, in our external communications as well. So getting it right for those audience groups is absolutely fundamental. And I do think there is a degree whereby that requires not necessarily specialist skill, because it is primarily about telling a fantastic, compelling kind of story, but it is also about really being able to play and think through the way in which particular messages are going to land with particular audiences, the segmentation of it, I think around the different leadership populations that we have and developing an approach which is both effective at a kind of written level but also a face-to-face level getting the balance between those things right i'm still really proud of the fact that you know anyone can just if they're interested in the post office you can log on to onepostoffice.co.uk wherever you are and have a look and see what's going on i think we have shifted a bit though where we've recognized that what might be of interest to us as employees isn't necessarily going to work for an external audience. So I think we've refined the position a bit now. So that one post office.co is still effectively, it is an internal communications platform, but it's primarily aimed now at postmasters and postmasters first and foremost. Now that should also encompass people who work for the post office and who are interested in it, but it won't mean that you'll get a sort of employee focused corporate, if you like, HR internal comms message as well. And that we'll use different channels for that. So we've, moved a bit I suppose 
Yes. And I think it's the right move. And I think it's probably a, a good example of me sometimes sort of leaping towards solutions a little bit too quickly and, and actually wise ahead in my team going, well, hang on a minute, I'm not sure this is entirely working. And let's just refine it a bit. And there, as is usually the case, there, Ryan, I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so does that answer the question? Because I think you know, I've definitely gone on a bit, of, as they say, a bit of a journey with this. It perfectly answers the question because I think what you're saying is that there's a principle involved, which is about consistency and yeah, coherency absolutely. across the piece yeah. between internal and external. Yeah. But then there is a need then to define your audience yeah. and to know that one size is not actually yeah. going to fit yeah. all. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about the franchisee's population, from my perspective, is where that plays into what in the future is going to be the gig economy. Already we've got a million people, I think, working in the gig mm. economy from an internal comms point of view where does that leave us yeah. when potentially a whole tranche of our workforce mm. are not going to be traditional employees yeah. but we need to communicate yeah. with them and they are in some ways very much delivering the brand experience yeah. and you can't get more internal than that from what you're saying that's the perfect answer is to think well who are these people what do they want from us what do they need most and yeah. build it from there it goes back almost to my starting out in journalism and, and you know that thing that people used to say is that when you're writing for the Liverpool Echo think about Mrs Jones in Fazakali right and what's she gonna think about this story yeah absolutely I think there's a peer-to-peer -peer nature in what you're trying to do which is saying yeah. we recognize that you're a businessman we're probably one of many suppliers you might have yes yeah. our name's over the door or you're delivering our brand but we need to play our part in you being absolutely. successful yeah it's and absolutely the, right and, and yeah. how can we help you in doing yes. that how yes. can we enable you? How can we facilitate that? Not, here we are telling you what to do or what to think today. Yes. Because that, you know, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But that's not going to work. No, it makes perfect sense. A big part of your job, obviously, is advising, and it always has been throughout your career, as you described, at a leadership level. What's your advice to someone possibly who's thinking the next step in my career is going to be supporting a senior leader or maybe a senior leadership team? Are there some sort of general golden rules that help you be more successful in that position? What I've massively learned over the last few years is the power of collaboration and really properly working with people across the business and really listening to people and really kind of understanding what they want from communications. You, therefore, in a much better position actually to influence them in, in terms of what actually is potentially more helpful for them. They, you know, so mm. and it kind of again I say something like that. It feels a bit obvious, but I think I'm not sure we do enough of it as communicators. I think yes. Sometimes we are a little bit kind of in a slight ivory tower. I think it's fine as well, by the way, to be like that because, you know, we do have a massive job to do. Yeah. And we are, you know, the public face, the internal face of the business. So funnily enough, we might get a bit protective, if you like, about what we do and why we do it. And obviously, you know, when you're writing words, of course you're going to be uh, protective yes. about them, aren't you? But I do think, you know, the more we can reach out as communicators and just, just really... And I don't and I really mean it in a meaningful way as well, not just kind of sending someone an email saying, oh, we're going to do this on Saturday. Have you got any ideas on it? And then ignoring what they say back. I mean, really kind of properly embedding and thinking through in tandem with colleagues. I think that's critically important. So you have to be kind of, I think, really resilient in that sense as well, I think, actually, because that does require a lot of effort. And it requires, you know, it almost requires you to be able to, place yourself your sense of your own self outside of yourself if that makes sense and try to sort of live as much as you can within not live but try to understand as much as you possibly can from the perspective that you have of what it's like to be in that person's shoes at that moment in time there's something about 
serving as well and service to those people. Which, yes. Which almost sounds, you kind of go, whoa, hang on a minute, service, servile. It's not servile, no, but it's service to those people. And that is what we're kind of here to do. I think there's something really, you know, doing that with humility, service with kind of humility is kind of what we're, mm. well, that might not be a popular kind of sense for a communicator. I think sometimes we kind of want to want to be the story, if you like. Yes. But we're not the story. No. We write the story, but we're not the story. Exactly, exactly. It's very interesting because I was rereading Jim Collins' Good to Great the other day and it reminded me about when he talks about these tier five level leaders where the difference between those leaders, those amazing performing leaders and everyone else, is that they put the service of their organisation before their career. Mm. It's exactly what you're describing. Yeah. Um, you do well in your career by doing well by the organisation. Yeah. You, you've got to go home and, and think, well, did I do the right thing for the business? Mm. And sometimes that means doing difficult things. But if you can say, I did the right thing for the business in serving the business, then I think mm. you're on the right track. So I'm now going to ask you those quick fire questions, if I may. So the first one is, is there one book, journal, website, or I could even say, you know, someone maybe we should be following on Twitter that all communicators should pay attention to? I actually think it's probably more about, and this is going to be a bit of a cop-out answer. That's all right. But I think it's more about the range, actually. Okay, no, So I reach for a lot of things, actually. And, I, you know, there's a number of things. I have lots of sort of things that I will go back to particularly actually around leadership, I think, perhaps more than comms, but leadership things that I will just go back to to almost kind of refresh myself and remind myself of certain things. So there are things like, you know, there's a wonderful quote from Eleanor Roosevelt about what it's like to be kind of in the, in the midst of a challenge. It's not the critic who counts is how it starts. It's the people who kind of in the, who are doing the day to day. And I often go back to that one because I think it's, it's really quite inspiring. And it also reminds you, actually, that for all of the challenges that we have on a day-to-day basis, they're not, never anything like some of the challenges that yes, you know, that's others true. have that's true. in their lives. And so there's a few things I kind of go back to like that. And, there's, you know, there's bits of literature that I go back to that mean a lot to me. I mean, I spend far too much time on Twitter, uh, <laughs> mostly being wound up by people. But there are some people on Twitter that I do go to and, and look to. I don't want to embarrass anybody by saying their names, but there's lots of really good people writing on Twitter in terms of you know our profession and I read a lot of that that kind of thing and I try to seek out others as well actually I mean Twitter I think fundamentally is a great thing as is obviously the internet it's just that people pollute it but actually if you're prepared to kind of really use it and look you can find some amazing people and really interesting people if you do that and it does open up those opportunities to do that doesn't it to get to yes. people that you previously never would have what would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain that you couldn't fail? That's such a good question. So what have other people said to that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give too much away. Well, I'd obviously get in touch with Middlesbrough Football Club and tell them that I'm available and, right. you know, I'd be their centre-forward and, you know, probably I'd combine that with opening the batting for England. OK, sounds good. Yeah. Sounds very good. <laughs> <laughs> a serious answer to that would be I would write the book that I keep promising myself ah. I'm going to write, which I still haven't done, but I will one day. Is this fiction or non-fiction? Well, I don't know what it is really, but I think it's, <laughs> it's fundamentally that I just love writing. So I started a blog about Middlesbrough Football Club, which is of interest purely uh, probably to me and maybe about 10 other people, but I just love doing it. When you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? Well, someone does come to mind on that. I mean, I don't know if they're the world's best communicator, but I mean, I think certainly Tony Blair was undoubtedly 
one of the greatest communicators of, well, he was certainly a great communicator and is a great communicator still. And I know that'll be a controversial view for some people, but, you know, I still believe that whatever one thinks about the Iraq war, which he's obviously now remembered for probably more than anything else, I think in terms of the way he was able to capture a, a message and deliver it in an incredibly powerful way. Yes. I think it's hard to think of someone. And I think, you know, when you listen to him talking about Brexit at the moment, again, regardless of what one thinks about Brexit, I think he's one of the few people who seems to be able to articulate a view which feels very clear and coherent. Again, without, you know, whatever one thinks about the issue, he's just a fantastic... He uses words brilliantly. And finally, this is courtesy of the Tim Ferriss podcast. You can have anything written on a billboard for millions to see... What would you write on it? So I, I would write on it, I can't remember who said this, but I think it's a really important sort of truth. And that is be kind for everyone who's facing a struggle. I think, you know, we all kind of come to work and we get embroiled in some of the day-to-day and the challenges and, you know, it all feels like the most important thing ever, but it isn't. And I think just maintaining that kind of sense of sort of humanity, I suppose, is critically important for any kind of leader maybe it sounds a bit pretentious i don't know so if, if you want a non-pretentious answer i'd write up the borough <laughs> we're allowing you two in that case <laughs> mark davis thank you very much for appearing on the internal comms podcast thank you <laughs> so that's a wrap for episode seven of the internal comms podcast for the show notes pop over to ab's website abcom.co.uk, A-B-C-O-M-M. We've included that Roosevelt quote in full, links to the One Post Office website and how to find Mark online, including his You Are My Borough blog. While you're there, you might like to sign up for I Saw This and Thought of You. This is our monthly newsletter for internal communicators, a roundup of the latest news reports and general goings on in the world of IC. It's also where you'll hear about future episodes, our live events and receive bonus content. I'm very keen to get your thoughts on the show and in particular your ideas for future guests. Lots of people are getting in touch and thank you to everyone who has. There's lots of ways to share your views. You can find us on Twitter, we're at ABThinks, or simply email me directly, icpodcast at abcom, that's double m.co.uk. Now, if you enjoyed the show, I would be very grateful if you could rate the podcast and this episode on iTunes, because apparently that's the very best way of making us more discoverable to a wider IC audience. And we genuinely are getting a global audience, which is amazing. To make sure you don't miss another episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. All that remains is for me to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. And until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.